Hey everyone, welcome to the 11th episode of Baseline Intelligence, the podcast designed to make you a better tennis player and a smarter athlete. I'm your host, Jonathan Stokey. Today's guest is Michael Joyce. Michael reached a career-high ranking of 64 on the ATP Tour and had wins over Patrick Rafter, Jim Courier, and Michael Chang. He also spent time as the coach of Maria Sharapova, Victoria Azarenka, Jessica Pagula, and Jeannie Bouchard. Today we discuss how he got his start in tennis, how his dad helped him and Maria win the U.S. Open final against Justine Eden, what he learned in a poker game with Phil Jackson, and much more. So sit back, relax, and prepare to become a smarter tennis player. All right, Michael, welcome to the pod. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So I don't know if you're an avid listener of the podcast, but my first guest was Jessica Pagula, who you worked with for six or seven years. And when we finished the episode, I, I texted her and said, hey, you know what? Like, I'd love to talk to your old coach, Michael Joyce. You know, I know he's, he's hilarious. He's got good information. He'd be a perfect guest. And a couple of weeks went by and I totally forgot. What reminded me to reach out to you was I saw a tweet and it was a video of Agassi hitting a tweener at the Lipton. Oh, right. The, the, <laughs> I've seen that a hundred thousand times. Uh, right. So, so he hits this tweener and I see the guy and I'm like, man, that looks a lot like Joyce. And I start digging in. I'm like, that is Michael Joyce. And by the way, That's I need to reach funny. out to him and invite him on the pod. But I was laughing because it's like you're the Craig Elo of uh, the right. tennis highlight. Well, it's exactly, exactly. That I've actually said that before. I feel like the is that the guy Jordan dunked on? It's the guy that I think he hit that fadeaway jumper from the free throw. Oh, that's it. Yeah, yeah. I think I said Rick Smiths one time or something. I felt like uh, yeah because they I, I'm still seeing it and I saw it that week about a hundred times too. They used to have the old ESPN play of the week, you know. So it was like I, I've seen that. Plenty of times. Do you keep hoping that even after like a thousand times that you would cover the cross court and just put away the volley? Right, right, exactly. The the thing was, it was actually like a pretty big point. That was what was funny. And and at the end of the video, it's really funny is you can actually see me talking to the ref. And I was kind of being a jerk a little bit because uh, a game or two before, uh, he, he kept giving me time violations. There were, the ref was telling me to speed it up, but I was so tired playing Agassi because you know he made you work so hard. And a couple times he told me I needed to speed it up. And right after that point, when Andre started doing his bowing and, and everything, I was waiting for him to finish kissing the crowd and bowing. So I actually looked over at the ref and I was like, why don't you give him a time violation? I love that. It's so funny. But I mean, part of the part of the thing, whether it's Rick Smith or Elo or, or you in that moment is like the other guy in the highlight is there because he's an insanely good player. Right. Like you exactly. were you exactly. were top 65 in the world. And so, you know, we have you on because you've coached a lot of great players and, and we want to learn from you as a coach. But you were an amazing player before we started recording. You know, we were kind of going through how you won Kalamazoo, uh, how you got into the open and won a round. And you know, so before we get into that, I just want to know, like, why do you think you had so much success as a player? Like, what were your strengths and why did that kind of translate to the pro game? Well, something really interesting, real quick, too, was about three months before that, I played Pete Sampras in Australia and uh, I lost in four sets. I played a really good match. And on a big point, like in the fourth set, he hit like one of his running forehand passes like that went like around the net post when they used to have the net post right up. So that was a play of the week too. So so between like those three months, I was on the the, the receiving end of two player plays of the of the week, which they still show thirty years later. So um, it was pretty funny. But 
Yeah, I feel like uh, for me, my game, it was an interesting time when I played because the game was kind of changing. I mean, we, we started, uh, I actually started with Wood Racket. And so it's funny when I look at it now, I mean, obviously equipment and stuff has changed a lot, but I was taught kind of like old school strokes, you know, real flat and, you know, Pete, like similar like Pete and, and, and even Davenport and, and, and my coach was Landstor. And so I had to make a conscious effort, 14, 15 years old to start using more spin you know, trying to, uh, I always use gut my whole career, you know, but then toward, I remember later in my career, people were starting to use Lux, Lux Salon and, you know, obviously hitting the ball with more spin and heavier and so forth. And so I think the way I was taught how to hit, that's why part of the reason I like working with Jesse because our strokes were similar, but I was kind of taught to hit flatter and, and drive through the ball more. And so I felt as I started to play the players that had more spin and, and, and more clay court players and different stuff, I, I really had to learn how to, how to take time away and, and um, you know, take the ball early and, and find ways to get to the net without having huge weapons. And, and so I really made a conscious effort to do that when I was 16, you know, 15, 16, 17. And, and I was lucky enough, too, to have really good, I don't want to say coaches, but my dad liked tennis and and we used to go over UCLA and watch the matches and my dad was great at getting me a lot of good players to work with like you know Barry Buss or Bruce Foxworth was a a guy he just recently passed away I learned a ton from him and so Landstorp was kind of like my main coach I, I would take a lesson once a week from him for an hour but I learned to play from a lot of these players who were just Van Winitsky, you know, players who were good players who were kind of like off the tour. Phil Agassi helped me a ton. And when I think back now of all the information I was getting from those players who, who then went into coaching, I think I really learned how to maximize my game. And I think that's why I went, obviously I had a good junior career, but I think in the pros, yeah, I was able to um, play against the best players in the world. I mean, if I had to do something different, I probably would have trained more in Florida or something. I, I trained in LA. I used to, the heat used to bother me sometimes and long five set matches. And I was really good at upsetting top players. Uh, but then by the quarters or third, third round quarters, I'd kind of run out of gas a little bit. So physically I wasn't the strongest. Uh, my body didn't hold up as well as some of like Courier and some of these guys, but I certainly could play their level for, for a match or two. So I'm proud of that. But uh, I, I think I maximized my game the, the most I could. And uh, so I'm proud of that. So you, you just mentioned Robert Lansdorp, who's a famous coach. He's worked with so many great players and kind of what your developmental process was like. But how much time did you spend either with Robert or just in general on your technique versus like learning how to compete, feel the moment, know what tactics you want to use? What was that percentage for you growing up? Well, it's a great question because uh, not a knock on Robert because obviously he had uh, worked with a lot of unbelievable players, but I didn't spend that much time with him, maybe two hours a week at, at tops. Uh, my dad like tennis and he he i was lucky enough he was kind of semi-retired by the time i was 10 11 years old so he would come to my lessons we'd work on technique and stuff especially young i started with robert young like at eight eight years old so i could play some before i went to see him but everything i learned in the lessons uh my dad would then we'd hit on the ball machine or so i worked a lot on technique obviously till like in my early days 
with that being said, however, my dad was a director of photography. Uh, he, he made TV shows and movies, and he was really into like preparation. He was really into like scouting, really into strategy, uh, maybe too much at times. And so it was pretty funny because even at nine, eight, nine years old, I had a game plan for every match. I, you know, he'd make me uh, after the matches write in a little notebook, you know, what the players played like because he'd say, I'm, you're going to play them again. Little things like that. So I think I had a good mixture. I think when I was 15, probably 14, 15, 16 is when uh, the strategy and also how to use my tools and my game became probably a bigger source. I mean, even even when I was 18, 19, I'd go see Robert in between tournaments. So maybe I'd go and take one lesson every two months, something like that, like a tune up on my strokes. But at that point, it was mostly strategy and how I how how to use my weapons and against different players and and one thing that was really I, I tell this story a lot it's pretty funny actually when I was I couldn't beat John Leach my big nemesis was Jonathan Leach who's married to Lindsay Davenport now and he's uh has kids that play Jagger and so forth so I lost to him in the 10 and under I lost to him at 12 and under he was he was twice my size too and, and I just could not beat John Leach I must lost to him about 12 14 times but the funny thing is I kept playing him like i'd enter a tournament he was always in the tournament i'd play him in the finals or semifinals my dad told me about 15 years later the reason i kept playing john leach was because he was going over to the southern california tennis association office and um finding out what tournaments he was entering in and putting me in the tournaments because he's like i don't care if he loses them 50 times he's eventually going to beat them and i always tell that story because it's kind of funny because back then we didn't have computers and all this stuff but that was my dad's philosophy. Like if I had trouble beating them, like eventually I'll beat them. Where nowadays you have kids that go on the computer, or parents, they see certain kids and they're like, oh, you can't play against that kid. We're, we're not going to play that tournament. So, so it's a totally different mindset than what a lot of parents and kids have nowadays. But ultimately, I finally beat him. And I think I beat him in the sectional finals, 12, 12 and under. And then uh, I, I beat him a bunch of times after that. I mean, maybe he beat me once or twice, but I learned how to beat him. And it, it was just, when I look back at it now, it's pretty genius of my dad to do that because uh, especially nowadays, people are always trying to avoid being uncomfortable. But being uncomfortable when you're young, I think makes you ultimately stronger. So you were saying about how you took notes on people you played and then, you know, just in case you're going to play him again. So to me, what that sounds like is like you were already being taught how to be a, I mean, not only a great competitor, but also in the future, a good coach, right? Like you're going to, you're going to pay attention to how they, how they play, what they do well, what they don't do well. So did you find that as you got older and you didn't have to spend as much of your, you know, mental brain power focusing on your strokes, did you focus more on the opponent when you were playing or were you focusing more on what you wanted to do? I think a combination of both, you know, nowadays, there's so much, I mean, you, there's so much analytics and you can see so much stuff now. Um, I mean, you could see where John Isner's hit every serve for the last five years. <laughs> so, but he still uh, manages to hold serves <laughs> an awful lot. So obviously uh, I'll tell you, uh, my dad was really into strategy, really into strategy, more of the opponent, maybe too much. Like I said, uh, Maria's dad was like that. They, they feared, they feared the opponent. 
even if sometimes even with Maria it was funny when she was real young, I'd see she's going to play a girl. And I mean, I know she's just going to kill the girl. I mean, I watched the girl, but he'd be like, want to know every, you know, you got to tell Maria she's this and that. And, you know, and I'd be like, okay, well, let's, let's not go crazy here. I mean, Maria could probably play her any which way and beat her one and one, you know, like, so, and my dad was the same way. He wanted, he, he wanted me to be prepared. He wanted me to know exactly how they played. So I think, I luckily found a happy medium because ultimately how everybody has weaknesses, they have strengths, they have tendencies, but how, how you match up against the opponent is the most important, you know, I mean, and so I think I learned that pretty quick. I don't know why I don't, maybe it was just my competitive, uh, whatever I want a lot in the junior. So I could usually figure stuff out. So I think uh, I think that's a, a fine balance, and and especially coaching women all these years, um, it's really important because you you don't want to give sometimes too much info about the opponent because if they're thinking too much about them, it's difficult. You you got to focus on things yourself too. So I think that balance is is really small. I mean, it was funny when I when I actually got to the third round of Kibis game one year, I played Michael Steak. And he was number two in the world at the time. It was like my first big win. And back then, again, like we didn't have computers, all this stuff. But my dad used to video every time tennis was on TV, he would record it. It's because he figured I'd play some of these guys. It was actually funny when he passed away. Was, I had to get rid of like 2,000 VH8 ta- tapes, you know, so from opponents of mine and then eventually opponents of Maria, like girls, because you, before we could see on computers and stuff. And I was going to play Michael Steak, and I remember my parents were driving to Las Vegas. I don't even think the match is on TV. And my dad called my hotel room, left a message. He's like, listen, you know, he told me a couple things about the guy. But he said, listen, I, I watched Steak play about 20 matches. And he goes, uh, the first break point you get, he goes, the first break point you get in the ad court, he goes, right before he starts, just run to the tee. He's going to hit it like 140 up the tee. He makes it every time. He goes, you know, that's like his go-to. He said, if you sit on that serve, he goes, you, you, you probably get a break. And I remember that sticking with me. And lo and behold, it's like two all first set. I break point and I'm standing there, you know, about to return. I just lean to the right. Guy hits like 140 up the tee, comes in, and I just crack a winner return. And he just like was shocked. And I went on to win the match like two and two. And then he started complaining about the wind and everything. But But that really like... That was big. I mean, I, I don't know. Who knows what would have happened, but that changed like the whole dynamic of the match. And my dad was really good at picking out those type of tendencies and, you know, where guys like to serve, where they like to pass, where they, you know, little things like that. And then he helped me a lot with Maria. I mean, with Maria, it was similar. Like she played Henan. I give him a lot of credit. U.S. Open final, uh, Maria was always struggling with Henan quite a bit. And um, obviously people, Everybody knew about her backhand, amazing backhand. But, you know, her forehand was still a good shot, whatever. But my dad actually figured out, he, he told me, and we, we were kind of going into that match kind of like not knowing exactly what to do. I mean, she had lost her a couple times. Obviously, I, yeah, I told her when she's pulled off the court, you got to take balls out of the air. and blah, blah. But my dad figured out, he's like, listen, if you can get Maria, like she has an amazing one-hand backhand, but she never hits it on the first one like she doesn't just tee off on the first one because she had pretty big grip changes and he's like if, if maria you shouldn't have to move her that much but if she can make her change grips a lot and it was funny because i played this kid like in the 10 and under his name was jamal hicks and he had a one-hand backhand 
And my dad used to always say, if you make him hit four and backhand, he'll like miss the third or fourth one because his grip, you know. And and so I was like, come, I was thinking, come on, dad. I'm like, yeah. but but I told her, I said, you, you know, even if you hit through the middle, just be careful giving her two backhands in a row, whatever. And if you watch the match, Maria does it like to a T. She literally is like forehand, backhand, forehand, backhand, like even through the middle of the court and head in third, fourth ball, Shanky and Maria won that match like three and four and then ended up beating her the next like four times doing that. Beat her at Australia like four and oh. You know, obviously it helps to have a player that can do it. I mean, you coach people that can't do that. It's, so she made me look good. But, you know, little things like that I think are huge. You go to one of these, um, you know, analytic people who analyze every single ball. It's you know, they can do that now, but I mean, we we were both good tennis players. You know, when you're out there, a lot of times you don't have time to to even think about half of the stuff that they have nowadays. So it, it's it's a fine line of how much. Um, information you you can get (laughs) and that becomes sometimes detrimental i think even yeah so like there's a feel for a match right like and that's something that i think kids today i mean look you're dating yourself if you're talking about vhs's and all this stuff i'm not quite as i'm not quite as old as you are quite yeah exactly but i remember telling kids that i work with now like hey you know i used to have to get not on my cell phone on a real phone call a friend and i would go play sets right and i felt like a lot of set play is where you learn that balance you're talking about right and now everyone wants to just hit cross court and always have a coach there but i mean do, do you see that i mean you've worked with some juniors are you seeing that lack of set play you know yeah kind of i think it's to- a i totally agree i mean it's it's a lack of set play i think it's uh maybe not playing as many tournaments as they should partly because of the rankings and and utr and computer and you know all that i've seen a lot of players ducking competition just because of their utr different stuff and the biggest thing is 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 sometimes a lot of times being out there and figuring out yourself. You know, coaches when coach is always telling you what to do, it's tough to you're you're looking for answers from somebody. And I mean, when I was 15, 16, there was a club out in LA called the Tennis Place, and uh, a lot of players played there, like Jeff Klapar. I mean, a lot of really good open players played out of there and different stuff. And my dad, a couple of times a week, would drop me off there. And I'd play four or five sets a day and uh, against different players, you know, these crafty 35-year-old guys or 30, whatever. And you, you had to f- I had to figure out how to beat them. And then you'd have a couple guys on the side that are making bets on the match, you know, whatever, that they'd sit there and play uh, dominoes and all this stuff. And then, But the point is, is uh, I was competing all the time. Yeah, and, and I wanted to compete and I wanted to, so sure you, I hit on the ball machine or I did drills and stuff, but I mean, I'm, I was playing sets. I mean, all the time. I mean, every weekend I had tournaments, two, three matches a day. If I didn't play a junior tournament, eventually I'd play junior open tournament. It didn't matter. It, it, it the rankings weren't as uh, big then. We did, certainly didn't have UTR, different stuff. So if you lost a match, lost a set, or you wanted to work on certain volley and lose, I mean, the only person that would know were you and the person you're playing. You know, now it's like, uh, you know, it's all over the place. So I think that's hurt the development in some cases of, uh, of players, you know, for sure. And I think uh, there's definitely no substitute for set play match play even if you don't want to play sets but you want to do i mean even certain drills i think that's why the players 
that I work with like working with me because even if I if I, even now like if I do certain drills and stuff I like to make it into a game or keep score you know one up one back all that stuff I think really helps like your vision your you, it, the intangibles that ultimately become super important um, as you get better. There's a, you know, we talk to our kids about this and I've seen it with adults too, but like they'll play games and then I'll, you know, I'll kind of check out their court. I'll go, Hey, what's the score? And they kind of look around. They're like, Hey, what is the score actually? Is it seven, three or is it seven, five? And there's such a skill in, if you actually keep score and you actually care if you win or lose the game, even if you're trying to get better in practice, you go, ah, this is what people do at seven all, you know, they get a little tight or they, they do this or. I can see this pattern and hey, guess what? When it's 5-1 and the point's not important, this is what someone does and this is how they act. Exactly. And it's just this art that I feel yeah. like is just getting It's lost. an art for sure. I mean, I've coached, uh, you know, I've had five or six players who have been my main players that I've coached, but in between with injuries or even with, with Jesse when she had knee surgery, I, I was helping out Shelby and Sam Crawford. And 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 I'm not saying these girls in particular, but I've I've worked with, a lot of different juniors and, and and my my favorite one is when they play points but they don't want to keep score or they'll even play their practice set but then they pretend they don't know what scores and you know and i'm sitting there and i know it's four all and i'll be like okay you guys can finish out the set and the one girl's like well we're, we're not keeping score and i'm like there's no way you don't know what the score is like it's all bs you know you know kind of thing but it's like I feel like everybody, especially the juniors, in a lot of ways are trying to take pressure off. But ultimately, pressure uh, is everything because you're going to have pressure. You know, even now, I hear a lot about the, like the kids with the UTR. They're worried about the UTR. And, and, and um, it's a thing. There's no doubt that they're worried about it. But I'm like, if you can't handle the pressure of worrying about your UTR, how can you even think about like making it high on a college team or eventually being a pro? Like if you're if you're worried about your UTR, how are you going to? how are you even talking about being a pro and you have match point to win $200,000? Uh, I mean, that, that, you know, you, you have a second serve. I mean, whatever, if you're thinking about UTR, how are you even thinking about, if you can't handle that, how are you going to handle as you go forward? So, you know, that's, that's something that's, we need, we need to be able to handle that pressure if you want to be good. Do you, do you think that comes down to a lack of confidence? Because I know like my mentality I would have been closer to what your dad was saying, like, oh, I want to play that good guy. I want to, I want to see if I can beat him instead of like, I'm a little nervous. What if I lose? I mean, I had nerves as a player, but I also really wanted the challenge. You think that's I'm a gonna blame it. Well, I'm going to blame it on the parents. I hate to say it. I'm going to blame it on the parents because I think the parents make a big deal out of it, which then makes the kids have a big deal out of it because it's hard. It's hard for me to believe, like, let's put it, but it's also because of the, the society and the computers and everything because if my dad was pissed that I was ranked number three instead of number one which could happen but it happened once a year <laughs> you know when the rankings came out now you can see it every five minutes so you know that that so I think the parents are concerned about the UTR or getting into college or different things or they're spending money and it, you're the, the players are being judged virtually every day I mean if they want to be and so then that becomes uh, extra pressure on the kids, because when you when you're young, the only thing you really care about it, I think, is kind of if your parents are happy in a way. I mean, so if you're playing at twelve and under, fourteen and under, I mean, if you lose, you win. I, I think it's like 
if your parents are happy, everybody's happy, then then you're happy. So, you know, we're looking for the approval of our parents or whoever, uncle, whoever's really close with you for a really long time. And then all of a sudden, when you're at an age where, okay, now you're maybe you're getting into college or you're going to turn pro, you still want their approval. But at the same time, now you bring in other factors like money or college scholarships or whatever. So, it's kind of like a cycle. I mean, if you if you if you have a parent who can like push you to be your best, but not really compare you to other people, I think that's a big thing too. With your UTR and the, I mean, I remember years ago it was like blue chip. Remember that whole blue chip thing, and that you're you're just basically being compared to other people at a really young age. I mean, that's that's tough, and and it, how the parents kind of handle it uh, really, I think, tells the story how the kid is going to, unless you know, of course, there's a few. Um, kids that that are different but for the most part i think that kind of tells a story how they're going to handle pressure going forward you know because I, because everybody has pressure everybody feels pressure but basically it's who handles it and who handles it the best and who actually learns to love it i mean obviously somebody like nadal um this young kid alcaraz now i mean you could see they they love the pressure i mean they 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 thrive guys like Djokovic and nadal i mean they wouldn't even keep going i don't think if they didn't love it because they don't have to put themselves in those positions you know they, so yeah there there is certainly a way to channel it so that you can teach your players and also as long as the parents aren't too much but if you you can teach your parents to kind of like that pressure i mean like you i mean if you and i probably went out to go hit tomorrow let's say we were going to go hit tomorrow i, I guarantee you in five minutes i'd, I'd rather I, i'd want to play some points or something i don't want to just sit there and hit cross courts with you right so that's ultimately what you want the player to 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 do i mean if i called up maria barely plays and said oh let's go hit i guarantee you in five minutes we'd play a baseline game or something <laughs> you know so that's the thing so it's a mentality of like pressure's fun like it's a good thing and it, and and if you can teach the kids to feel that way you're still going to choke you're still going to have tough losses but if you have that if, if you can find a way to teach them to look at it as like a fun thing then ultimately they're going to be better so I'm going to assume that, you know, some of those, some of the pros you worked with and, and certainly some of the juniors struggled with pressure. How did you teach them to handle that pressure in a healthy way? Yeah, I mean, interesting, this last girl I've been working with a lot, Ashlyn Kruger, um, who won the Nationals last year. She's 17. I worked with her last year and a half. I've seen a huge, like, this is something we've talked about a lot because she's she went from basically, I mean, she won Orange Bowl about a year and a half ago she was a wild card in in the orange bowl 16 and then she won it and then last year uh i mean and i know a year and a half ago she was thinking about playing college tennis and 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 different stuff and then she won orange bowl then last year uh we went to some of the junior grand slams and then you know obviously going to the nationals she was a big you know there was like two or three girls who were kind of favorites or whatever and she was able to win it. She almost lost first match because she was so nervous and tight and she got through it and then she went on to win it. But then she went to U.S. Open. Now there's a different pressure because that's another thing. There's different pressures. You know, there's a pressure of like playing juniors where you're expected to win. And then you have pressure of now she's playing U.S. Open and she's even feeling pressure practicing with uh, other pros that she's used to seeing on TV or even walking around. So 
you know, that's a step now of, okay, I'm playing main draw U.S. Open. And then after that, she had to play juniors the week later. So now you're back in the juniors. And then, then she turned pro. And then at the end of last year, she, I felt like some matches she was playing really tight, like in challengers and stuff, which I actually didn't really see coming. I thought that she would go in and be loose as can be and play great. And I'm seeing her every day. So I'm seeing her play practice matches and I know the level she can play because I'm watching her play Alice and risk in practice and, you know, wins the set six, four. And then all of a sudden two days later, she's playing qualifying against a girl 300 and she's tight as a drum, you know? And so when I finally, I, I had talks with her, I mean, I didn't bring it up all the time, but eventually she lost a match earlier this year in Rome, Georgia. She was just tight the whole match. And then I asked her, I said, you know, Ashlyn, I'm like, you look tight, you know, and a lot of times they'll say they're not or, you know, they try to say, oh, I'm not nervous or I'm not this or I'm not that. And she finally kind of opened up to me and she's like, you know, I feel pressure of like USTA. Not, She's like, not in a bad way. She's like, but you, you're like a really well-known coach, USTA. Um, you're my coach. She like, that puts some pressure. <laughs> she's like, USTA paying for my you know, training and apartment, that's pressure. I just, she's like, I just signed with IMG, like IMG, like now I, I know that they're looking at my results. They want, and so she had all these little outside things. And I, and so I had to explain to her, I'm like, Ashlyn, you know how many players have come through USTA? I mean, that, that haven't done anything, <laughs> you know, like that they, they've spent, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars that we don't even know. Uh, same with IMG, you know, I mean, people they've signed, you know, ultimately they're going to care, like if you do something really good, you know, so I, I think if you have a, a relationship enough with the player and it could be different if you're working with a 14 year old or 12 year old, but they all have fears and they all have thoughts. And a lot of times those thoughts like manifest themselves to be much bigger than they really are. So I think talking about it is important. Obviously some people, some players I've coached are really upfront about it and they want to talk about it and they get it out there. And then I've had other ones that keep it close to the chest. I think that's actually the biggest beauty of coaching. I mean, I think coaching the, you know, the X's and O's of tennis aren't that hard. It's the same with, um, uh, you know, football team or baseball, basketball, whatever. I mean, I don't, I mean, we could all watch a football game and we can pretty much tell like why one team is winning or what's missing on a team, but how do you get the team to actually get better? And it's the same with tennis. It's like we can teach a forehand, we can teach a backhand, we could teach a pattern. But getting your players to build confidence, to handle the pressure, to handle situations, to like coming to practice, to like learning, to like competing. I think that's where coaches, that's where I think we earn our money, to be honest. I really do. I, I remember years ago I was in Australia and Phil Jackson had taken a sabbatical for a year and he was down in Australia and we it was James Blake and Roddick and myself we were playing poker with him one night at the Crown Casino up at the top and we had a poker game going and I think James maybe asked him like hey Phil like what's your secret you know to having 10 rings or something and he said two words and he goes uh, or he goes two people Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant and then we all started laughing and then he's like, no, seriously, he's like, he's like, obviously it helps having, you know, the talent he goes, but he goes, what's really hard is to take like 11 or 12 players. And he goes, especially players, a lot of times that are from, you know, inner city or, or background of, um, 
you know, having no money or this. And now they're all like multimillionaires. And he goes, having them all kind of play together as a team and, and all go towards a certain goal. And he goes, I have to treat each player totally different. And he said, I think that's my talent. I can get the most out of each player. And eventually we, we can accomplish a, a goal that we all want. And I thought that was really cool because that's exactly what you have to do when you coach different people. I mean, you know, you might have six people in a day and each one you got to approach differently. And I think the most successful coaches are able to do that. And I think that's where we kind of, that's what separates the great coaches from, you know, just average coaches. I think for me, that's also what makes it fun, right? Like if every single that's kid- That's what I love, exactly. Yeah, if, if it was the same blueprint and it's like, all right, uh, we'll do this drill, this drill, this drill. I'll talk to you about this, 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 in this order. It works every time. I would be bored to death, but each kid has their own puzzle. Each adult has their own puzzle. Absolutely. That's my favorite part too. Yeah. So I want to switch gears a little bit and talk to you. You know, you mentioned a couple of times already, you coached a bunch of great players. Uh, I want to know what the- the biggest lesson or thing that you learned from coaching Maria? Yeah, well, Maria, uh, that's, that's, I learned a lot. I mean, it it was kind of an interesting time too, because she was pretty much one of my first people I was coaching full time. So I was actually learned a lot about coaching and so forth with her, which was uh, interesting because obviously she went on to be such a great player. The thing, the thing about her that was amazing was uh, two things. Number one, her ability to always want to learn, no matter how successful she was. I mean, she listened to me at 21 years old the same way as if I was giving her a tip or something when she was 15. Like, she really wanted to learn. She always wanted to, like, uh, do something a little better. Uh, every day we went to practice, she was always, um, you know, I say every day, at least 95% of the time, she, she was you're going to give it a hundred percent and, and, and was always made me feel like I could give her info. And even if, you know, we had a good, a good relationship where if she disagreed or whatever, it happened at times, but we, we had good, we listened to each other. We had good trust. She she never acted like she knew it all, you know, which was, was big. And then obviously the biggest thing was her uh, will to compete. I mean, she was, easily the the fiercest competitor that I've seen that I've worked with I mean she would um, I used to even if she was way down in a match I used to think to myself you know what if this girl beats her she's gonna have to go through like hell for like 15 minutes because you know like a boxer on queer street they call whatever I knew that Maria was gonna even if she was playing better she was gonna fight to the death you know and that I saw her win so many matches like that like early in tournaments I mean it's same with like Serena those great players I mean everybody remembers their game and how they play or they might see them win a final play lights out you know on two and one but they didn't see the third round where she was fighting for her life playing crappy nervous all that stuff and so that I respected out of, and then that turned into her coming back from her injuries. I mean, to, to have the shoulder surgery and what a lot of people don't realize, I mean, her best surfaces were always faster surfaces. Uh, obviously Wimbledon, US Open, Hardcourt. She hated clay early in her career. And then to have shoulder surgery, which affected her serve tremendously, I think if she wouldn't have had a shoulder problem, I think she would have won probably a, another five or 10 slams. No doubt. Um, I have no doubt she would have, but 
she came back with a serve about 30, 40% of what she had before. I mean, she had an amazing serve before she hurt her shoulder. I mean, second serve, everything was, she had a beautiful serve, a great serve. And to actually come back, people don't realize when she came back from shoulder surgery, she won French Open twice, but she didn't actually win any tournaments on hard court. Finally, later at the very last year in her career, she won a small tournament in China on hard court. But she actually learned, she won, she actually transformed into almost like a clay court player because of her her serve wasn't as good which is pretty amazing to do for somebody like her so just her will to compete and fight and and learn and 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 get better and and adapt um were the biggest traits that i saw from her that's the number one skill just personally that i value in a player is if you give me just an absolute animal as a competitor exactly we we can figure out the rest. We can figure out your well, serve. Well, exactly. Or... I mean, I'll, even like Sarah, I mean, that's why I love working with Sarah Hamner so much. I mean, at, at South Carolina now. I mean, I don't know if you've seen her. She's kind of a small girl, whatever. I mean, she went into college this year, like, hoping she could, like, make – I mean, she was asking me right before she went to South Carolina. She's like, where do you think I'm going to play on the team? I was like, I think you'll play, like, one or two, you know? And she's like, ah, you think? And then she, I remember she got a wild card into the tournament in Charleston in Qualies. And she called me up. She was so pumped. She was in qualities and she went on to win the tournament. Now she's like top five in college. But this girl was uh, similar to Maria. Uh, she doesn't have the stature like Maria had, like the uh, size and so on. But this girl is going to make it because she's an animal and she'll do anything to get better. And she loves it. And, you know, that goes a long way in, in any and in anything in life. And she's probably the next second best competitor I've seen to Maria's Sarah. It doesn't necessarily have to be with Maria or Vika or any of the other great players you coach, but what was the biggest mistake that you made as a coach and what did you learn from that? Uh, that's a really good one. I think we make tons of mistakes. <laughs> I think, uh, you know, I think, I think, I think, well, I'll tell you one in particular that kind of sticks with me a little bit. I mean, it wasn't that big. So Maria was, and this is goes back to what we were saying before, how you have to approach every player a little bit different. So Maria was the type, They when I was with her about halfway through, they started the on-court coaching, yeah, where you go out on the court for a couple minutes or whatever. So obviously, you usually don't go out there unless the person is struggling. I mean, if they're winning easy and whatever, that's really no reason to go out there. <laughs> so... With Maria, a lot of times, she, if she was nervous or struggling, sometimes if I'd pick a fight with her, um, she'd get like so pissed off or she'd get like pissed at me and then she'd forget about being nervous. And a lot of times I could go out there and pick a little fight with her or whatever. And she would just start, I knew like, uh, it was like that movie Miracle, you know, or something where the guy, <laughs> you know, picks a fight and she'd get all fired up and she'd start like get pissed at me, but she'd win the match. Yeah, then whatever. And so after working with Maria, knowing that about her for seven, eight years, I started working with Jesse. And Jesse was uh, totally opposite. I remember going, you know, we went to a lot of challengers and different stuff. And then she played like her first, like, I think it was DC or something. And they had the encore coaching. And I remember like going out there and like kind of trying to rile her up. And she just like totally like like he looked at me like I was a nut and like tanked or something. And I remember going like, oh, okay, that didn't quite work, you know? So then the rest, but, but again, and then I learned, okay, with Jesse, you kind of have to like make it 
feel like it's her idea kind of but but it's it, it so yeah, obviously in that particular moment it was a mistake but it, but it also I learned from it and um one thing I learned with it's probably like this with everybody but you'd probably even know better than me because you probably worked with more men and women I've I've worked with mostly women because of uh you know obviously Marie and so forth but it's very bad to compare a girl a woman player to another woman player um uh men may be a little bit different i don't know um i guess i'll find out soon enough but i think men in some cases like you could say oh look at this guy he does that or you could do that you know i don't think we take it as personally but women don't like to be compared to other women in general and it's probably not good to compare uh especially like peers and 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 i have to always be careful when i'm coaching if i bring up maria or if i bring up jesse i have to do it in a way where i'm not making them think that I expect them to be like Maria or be like Jesse. So I'm, I'm very con- conscious of that because I've had a few situations where I'm not really comparing them to Maria or Jesse, but I'm, or something. Cause that, that happened a lot with Jesse actually, cause Jesse was my next player right after Maria. And obviously when I started with Jesse, I mean, the first term he went to like qualities of a 25 K like a week after working together and, you know, two months before I'm, I'm with Maria and, Australian Open or something. So I, I think early on with Jesse, I might have mentioned Maria maybe a little too much, you know. But it, but a lot of times I was mentioning it not necessarily because it was Maria. I was just trying to pass on a, a experience. So yeah, I think it's super important for the players to to know other players have had similar experiences, situations. Uh, but you got to do it delicately and not make them feel like, oh well, he thinks like I should do what Maria did or something. And, and so I learned that. So that's probably a mistake that I've made on, on a few occasions. That's um, constantly, you know, it's just that fine line. And, and again, it depends on the person a lot. Um, so now we're going to get into the Instagram questions. I don't know if I told okay. you about that. but these No, are... <laughs> no, but no problem. These, Bring it these, on. These are a couple of followers. Uh, we got the four or five here. So I, I guess maybe it goes into what you're just talking about, but was there ever pushback or resistance with the top players you worked with? And how did you work through that? Like if you were giving them some advice or a new, a new thing to work on, were they ever resistant to that information? Um, I didn't have a, I didn't have a lot of resistance from Maria or Jesse because I think I started with them when they were really young. So we kind of grew together. I've had, I have, I had a little resistance with Conta or or genie a little bit uh because they obviously were already really good i mean that's that's something you know with conta she was four in the world genie would so i i think for the most part it's not really resistance but but they like to kind of like go back to like their comfort zone or they'll be like oh this is what i did when i was number four or this and so when you're trying to and usually it's pretty, I mean, I've, I've always had pretty good luck telling the truth, even if they don't want to hear it. I think there's obviously a way to do it, but it's going to drive me nuts if I feel like I need to p- tell somebody something and I don't, and then they lose or something. So I, I always try to tell them the truth. Uh, and I think ultimately, even if they don't want to hear it at first, uh, I think ultimately it, it works out well. I think you approach every situation different. I think some players, obviously, the top players are 
obviously less limited when it comes to like their game. I mean, you could be working with a player who's pretty good, but they just, we just, everybody in the whole world knows their forehand sucks. I mean, you know, what are you going to do? You try to manage it, uh, you know, the best way you can or, or, or whatever, but like the top players obviously are usually pretty sound. So, you know, if you're trying to implement something or do something, I think, you know, it usually turns out that you guys find a common ground. I haven't had a ton of resistance when it comes to that. So I have my own follow-up to that. You said you had a lot of success by being honest. Was there ever a situation where you told a little white lie because you thought it was in their best interest at the moment? Yes. Yes, I have. I actually have. I, one comes to particular, it, it, but it wasn't a total lie, but it kind of was. Uh, Maria was playing Fed Cup. This just shows you what kind of competitor. She was playing right after she won Australian Open. Uh, we had to go to Israel to play. She had to play a Fed Cup match, and she had never played Fed Cup, but she had to play like to be eligible for the Olympics, like the next year or something. So we, so imagine this: she wins Australian Open. We take a flight straight to Israel, and uh, we're we're on like uh, it turned out some like hurricane or something hit. So we didn't even hit for like four or five days. And then they're playing Shahar Pier and this girl Obligizer or something like that. But Pier was a good player. She was like top 20 at the time or top 10. And Maria won the first day. She beat this girl. The crowd was horrible. They were like grunting when she was hitting and everything. So she won her match. And then I think Safina lost to Pier. And the next day we kind of made the we made the choice that Maria was only going to play like one match because that's all she really needed to do to be eligible. So the next day, the captain, this Tarpishoff comes up to me and says like, we really need Maria to play today against Pierre. And I was like, ah, you know, I don't really think she, cause physically and stuff, I was kind of worried. And then he, he was so nice and the Russians were nice. And so Maria, we, we all went there in the morning. And so the day before, so I basically told Maria that Pierre was like talking shit about her, <laughs> which she kind of was a little bit because she was, she said something in the paper, like, Oh, you could see how Maria got rattled with the crowd. Cause she almost, she beat this girl it was like one in four, but in the second set she struggled because the crowd was like grunting all this stuff throwing. So I said, you know, Pierre basically said that like the crowd rattled you and you know, you, if like the way she plays, if they show up again and rattle you, like she's going to beat you. And literally five minutes later, she's like, let's go warm up. And she beat Pierre one and one. And and you can actually see the match on YouTube after the match. She gave the like shh to the crowd and she played sick lights out. So that was a little white lie. But if, if there are white lies, it's going to be like me, like, oh, you know, like I, I, I could do this and, you know, let's see if you can do it or something. <laughs> like, if, like Jesse, I used to do that a lot. I'd be like, oh, I used to run this hill. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you can't quite do that, whatever. And then she'd want to show you or something. So, yeah, I think I think it's uh, it, it, sometimes you have to if it's going to get the most out of your player, as long as you don't lose their trust, then it's fine. Uh, this might be a difficult one since you're used to working with basically top five players, but what's your best advice for the three five club player? Okay, uh, sing, uh, are they playing single? Are they playing doubles three five a lot, or or they can play singles? If, if you have, yeah, they do both. If you have time, give us one for each. But if not, go with doubles. I think it's important for them to to if they can afford it to take 
make sure they take some lessons, you know, take some lessons or if you, if they're playing doubles and they have a partner, they play with a lot, maybe take a lesson together with the partner or even if they can take some private lessons, especially with somebody who, you know, like yourself, who was a player or something, because I think a lot of players like to play or at that level, like to play, but you know, obviously they're, if they're, they're probably older, their technique is, but, but, you you know having that experience of having a coach that can help them they they don't need a coach all the time but having a, a set of eyes that can help them i think can bring their level up a lot yeah we we were saying we sometimes at the club we'll we'll see a you know a 35 guy or or a lady and someone will say yeah they've kind of been 35 for the last you know 4 or 5 years and you're like you oh see? well do, do they do they is that cuz they like to be 35 or are they just not really improving at the level what's uh... it's actually funny I, I, real quick i'm sorry my sister played in college and stuff but she didn't she she was a really good player in college but then she she's a lawyer she didn't play tennis for like 20 years and she was now she picked it up again like a year ago she plays four or five and it's pretty funny you said that because she she's playing like four or five and she keeps winning like six and a third and and she's like everybody's telling me I need to move up, but she's like, I want to stay at four or five because it's easier, but it's kind of funny. So I'm picturing what like three, five is based on how I think my sister's playing right now. But if, but but the thing is, if you're stuck, I mean, that's the thing. If you're, if you're stuck at a level for a long time, then you probably, it's probably worth it to get some, uh, some coaching. So is there anything that you knew as a player or that you've picked up as a coach that, Basically, either a young junior or the three-five adult, whatever that would be, could implement into their game right now, like a tactic or a thought for a shot. Is there anything that you think a a beginner to intermediate intermediate player could uh, get out of that? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, uh, I have this little bit of philosophy. You know, like the best players in the world. I've I've, I've talked to a couple guys who've been at the top, and and I asked them. I'm like, you know, obviously when you're playing, are you are you choosing your shots based on what the, the person's giving you or are you making up your mind that you're going to go for a winner up the line and then you're just going to go for it no matter what ball comes to you? And it's interesting because the, most of the top guys say they, besides their serve, I mean, obviously you can control your serve. A lot of time you can control the first ball, but but they're hitting a lot of times the ball that, that the person gives to them. Yeah. So, you know, real short slice and maybe they want to go up the line, but they realize that split second, they realize they can't do it. Uh, women tend to want to go down the line and they just go down the line, even if the ball is deep or whatever. And so I've told that story to a lot of people. And, and I think the players, so I think at any level, uh, a lot of times you can control your serve. If you're 3-5, maybe you're returning somebody's serve that's not super strong, so you might be able to control a little bit. But during the point, a lot of times you got to pick the shot that the person gives you. And I think you can do that at every level. I mean, I think that's something that we tend to kind of want to make something happen sometimes when there's nothing there to happen. And I think that's where a lot of mistakes come in play. And, and I think that's something that I think at every level – especially as you get into a rally, uh, you got to pick, pick your shots based on what the person gives you. Because at the end of the day, that's what we're doing. We're playing a game against an opponent. And this is the last Instagram question. It's from someone you know. I won't tell you who. Uh, try to keep the answer to under 10 minutes if you can. 
Uh, <laughs> I might know who wrote it based on the question. Let's see. It, it says, do the Los Angeles Lakers need to rip it all up and start over? That's Lucero. It, you're not it's got to be Lucero. <laughs> is yeah. it? Yeah, yeah, yes. it is. Yeah, they need to. They, they. I almost feel like they uh, got to just like change the name of the team. I mean, it's it's. Uh, let's just put it this way: I'm glad I'm in Florida right now because it's, it's L.A. Thank God they won the Super Bowl because this Lakers is embarrassment. I mean, the, the, how they don't even make the the play-in game is just a joke. Yeah, they got to rip it up. Uh, Mark Mark Lucero might even coach him. I, I don't know, um, but. I, I don't, yeah, I bet, I, but I feel like we had this conversation about eight or nine years ago and then they ended up winning, winning the championship in that bubble. So I think they'll be back, but they got to rip it all up. Yeah. I want to, I want to know if, if you're aware of how spoiled you sound, because I root for the New York Jets and. Ah, that's, Jesse told me that one too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I, I cheer for a football team that wins roughly three to four games a year. And and you're oh over there. Oh my gosh! You're over yeah. there crying because you only you only won a you know a world title two years ago. You poor guy. I feel so bad I, for you. Yeah, exactly. That's I feel like Lucero and I talked about this five or six years ago, or maybe even four years ago when they were stinking it up, and then like a year or two later they won championship. But it's funny. My wife is from Ohio, and so she she loved LeBron when he was at Cleveland. And then she likes basketball. She doesn't like tennis. So she loved LeBron in Cleveland. She hated him in Miami. She liked him when he went back to Cleveland, and she hates him in L.A., except for when he won the championship. All of a sudden, she was a LeBron fan again. So I, I actually wouldn't mind seeing LeBron go, to be honest. Wow. Yeah, I hate to say it. I think he's a great player, but I, I think they just need to tear up that whole team right now. Man, shots fired at LeBron. All right, I'll tag him. I'll tag him in that, uh, I that know. audio clip. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't get any of Taco Tuesday or whatever he hands out because <laughs> I'm in Florida. So, Mark, go get a taco for me. Hilarious. All right, Michael, it's been awesome having you on. And, uh, you know, look, I bet you got about a thousand other stories. So we'll, we'll have to have you on later in the year. But um, that was great. I learned a lot. I loved, I loved listening to you. And, uh, you know, wish you all the best moving forward this year. Thanks, John. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right, I want to thank Michael for joining us today. So many cool stories about his days as a player and a coach. I thought the story of how they beat Hennon at the U.S. Open final was fascinating. Uh, the attention to detail and understanding that Hennon's grip change was the key to winning is really cool for me to hear as a coach. I think it's important for all the players out there to remember, spend time thinking about your opponent during the match. Pay attention to what they like, what they don't like how they're winning points, and how they're losing points. It's easy to get wrapped up in obsessing over your own game and how you feel, but sometimes the key to winning on that particular day lies in the small details and breadcrumbs that your opponent is constantly giving you. I want to thank you all for listening. I know there are a lot of podcasts out there, and I'm grateful you chose to join me today. I'm motivated to evolve and improve, so please subscribe if you enjoyed the episode and leave a comment or review so we keep getting better every week. For more, check out my Instagram at Stokey Tennis for clips from these podcasts, as well as general drills and tips to help your tennis game. Thanks for listening. I hope you just improved in tennis without even hitting a ball.